Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and went and got Peter, Simon Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Amen. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is alive. And that is worth celebrating. Man, we have a, one of, today is a historical day for New Heights Church. We are launching, you can hear it. If you listen real carefully, you can hear it in the back right now. We have launched New Heights Espanol. And we plan for about, we were hoping for maybe 60, but we were well over 60. We didn't even have enough chairs. And that's happening in the chapel behind us. Isn't that amazing? Today, I am excited to be with you. Today is more than just a day that I put on my, my fly threads, and they are fly, right? I went and got my blazer. Two, two Sundays a year, I'm going to do this. One's during December, and one is for Easter. It's more than that, though, today. Today is the day we celebrate that Jesus Christ was a real man that really did live the perfect life, who really did die on a Roman cross, but who really did walk out of his own tomb. Come on. And today I want to let you in on why. If you're new to church, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep elaborating on this. I'm going to keep uh, going down this path. Today is special. Not just because we've got a packed church. Not just because we have amazing flowers. Not just because of my blazer. I want to tell you why we're so excited. Because Jesus is not just a dead historical figure. He's not just a moral example for your kids. He's not just a flash in the pan miracle worker. Here today, gone tomorrow. More than just a preacher from the past. Jesus Christ is the wrath absorbing, death defeating, sin forgiving, resurrected savior of the world. And that's awesome and that's worth celebrating. We celebrate because on Friday, evil swung a haymaker at Jesus. But on Sunday, this day, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death once and for all. Jesus defeated the enemies of God. That's Jesus. That's who we worship. That's who we praise. It was Friday that Jesus died on a cross. He was laid in the tomb. But on Sunday, 
He was raised to life and he kicked open the door of his borrowed tomb. Today is the day that across the world, over two billion people will celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. Did you hear me? Jesus is alive. Jesus is a death crushing, Satan stopping, victorious king that is still today ruling and reigning. People from every tribe, hear me out, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship this Jesus. And today we sing and celebrate because Jesus has changed the world. That's what all the excitement is about today. Come on. He's the risen son of God. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and he's ruling and reigning even to this day. So I'm not going to waste your time today talking about some dead historical figure. I won't do that. Don't want to talk to you about some religious system or morals that you can apply and hope your life gets a little better. Not going to do that. I'm here to talk to you about a risen man, a living man, a friend of sinners. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, today I want to let you know if you're new to New Heights Church, we love the Bible. In fact, we we teach through the Bible verse by verse every single Sunday because we believe that it's God's spoken word. It has all the authority and it's going to do much better than my philosophy or my opinion. And so today, because it's real special, what I want to do, because we would be in Acts chapter 3 today. We'd be focusing on Peter just performed the first miracle in, in the book of Acts. Uh, a lame man is walking all of a sudden. And, and then Peter, starting in verse 12, starts to preach a message. Remember, cowardly Peter. But in verse 15, he says this in, in the middle of his message. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. Talk about seeker sensitive. Uh, Peter didn't know anything about it. <laughs> you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now this could be applied to all of us. All of our sins put Christ on the cross. And I want you to remember, this is Peter preaching this message. And I want to look at his journey of faith today with you. The way to really understand something is you've you got to go back to its starting point, right? So everything has a starting point. Every job, every journey, every living thing has a starting point. Romances have a starting point. I remember the starting point for me and Liz. Central Bible College, I was a senior, and this beautiful young underclassman gets up and she prays in this World Missions Chapel, and that was the beginning for me. I knew I was going to marry that girl. I was gonna, we were going to have a family. We were going to do life together. I knew it. That was the beginning for me. It was not the beginning for Liz took me a couple years. It was the beginning for me. Everything is a starting point. Our faith has a starting point too. It's got a base, right? For many of us, the starting point of our faith was probably what our parents told us was true. That's usually the starting point for a lot of people's faith and whatever they believe. Or maybe it was whatever the pastor says, or maybe it was, well, this is what the Bible says. And for many kids, if mom and dad says it's true, then, well, it's true. I remember one of my first ministry positions, I worked with uh, college students, and I, I still remember to this day this young lady who was, uh, well, I, I think it's fair to say she lived a sheltered life, and she came into our program, and I remember when we were talking about uh, creation, I remember her telling the story, and she, she was very sincere. She said, uh, when it rains, it's because God is crying, and that's what my mom told me. And she believed it, because that is what her mom told her. And, uh, well, her mom was wrong, but she believed it, right? And, and, and she doesn't believe it now, you know, now that she's been exposed to 
uh, well, reality and truth. But at that point, she believed it. Why? Because mom told her it. Mom said, and so mom, whatever mom said was true. When we're young, that kind of works as a foundation for truth. But as we get older, we begin to be a little uneasy with just uh, whatever mom and dad told us as the foundation for what's right or what's wrong. We start questioning things. And so, you know, the question today is, how do we know what is true about God? How do we know what's true about God? I mean, if we're going to be honest, most of us would say that we've asked ourselves this question in our lifetime. Right? And there's the thing... The Apostle Peter, the guy who, who just preached that in our text, did you know he had to ask the same question? How do we know what is true about God? Peter, he'd always been a pretty trusting guy. He'd been one of the first to sign up when it came to following Jesus. He took Jesus at his word, and not only did he take Jesus at his word, he got a bunch of people to follow Jesus. But then Jesus was put on trial, and everything in Peter's world came crashing down, and Jesus died. Jesus was not supposed to die. That was not the way that Peter viewed Jesus. And that, that just destroyed Peter. How could God let this happen if Jesus was so loving, if he was so in control? Why had he left Peter and all the other disciples in this mess that they found themselves in? How could God let this happen? He struggled so much with his faith that he even cussed out a little girl when she accused him of being one of Jesus' followers. Last night we watched The Passion of the Christ and, and Allie now is old enough to read all the subtitles and when it got to that part, she looked at me and said, hey, what you said is true. I said, Allie, most of what I say from the stage is true. Maybe my stories and my own personal life are a little exaggerated. But Peter cussed out a little girl. He did. But everything, everything changed for Peter one Sunday morning, and it's recorded in in the book of John. Uh, Tiffany read it for us earlier. John chapter 20, verse 1 through 9. I want to read it again. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I would love to have that as my title. I don't know if that caused any insecurities, but uh, anyway. And, and, she, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid, laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the, face of the, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This was the day Peter's life changed radically. Peter walked into that tomb a very discouraged, very defeated doubter. He walked out as the most important leader in the new Christian movement. From this point on, from the point that he realizes that Jesus has resurrected from the dead, the disciples start looking to Peter as the leader of the church. Now, what was it that changed him? What was it? Pentecostals always say it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But text seems to indicate, and that did change his life, trust me, but text seems to indicate that the resurrection of Jesus Christ radically transformed Peter's life. I want, I want you to put yourself in the place of Peter this morning. Because many of us, I would say, are like Peter. We have questions. Some of us have doubts today. There are things that just don't make sense to us. In fact, some of you might even feel like Peter when he cussed out that little girl. 
You feel like God has disappointed you and you've responded with your life. You have reacted to what you feel like God has disappointed. These are the areas where God has disappointed. I thought God would be this. He disappointed me and you, you have this reaction to it. Or maybe you feel like you've disappointed him. Maybe there's some people who've walked in here today and you feel like you've disappointed God too much to ever have a relationship with him. Remember, Peter denied Jesus so many times that he felt his relationship was beyond repair. That's why Jesus had to personally reinstate Peter because he didn't feel worthy. He went back to what he was doing before Jesus. But I want you as best as you can this morning, try to put yourself in Peter's shoes or or his sandals. Put yourself in his sandals and feel what he felt when he walked in to that empty tomb. Peter saw the empty tomb and that was enough evidence for him. Even though people of his time attempted to discredit the resurrection, it's not like this is something new that Christianity is facing today or just dealing with today. From the very beginning, people have been discrediting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I don't want to spend my morning giving you proofs of the resurrection. I know a lot of Easter sermons are the proofs of the resurrection. 21 reasons you can believe in the resurrection. Here's why I don't want to do that today. Because I think the evidence is out there. If you really truly are a skeptic, all you have to do is investigate it. The evidence is out there. But I think even if I spent all morning long just giving you the proofs of the resurrection, some of you are going to walk out and you're you're not going to be challenged at all by it. But what I want to do is focus on the, the evidence of the resurrection in the sense of the changed lives. That's all I want to talk about today. Because I really think the best evidence of the resurrection was the change in the disciples' lives. I, I think that speaks of itself. I want to read a quote from Chuck Colson. Listen to this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I like that. Again, here's my my hope and my prayer. By the end of today, I'm hoping that you can say with confidence what Peter has said in his sermon, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And you experience the same life transformation that Peter did. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant for Peter. You ready? Number one, Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was who he said he was. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then Jesus was who he said he was, regardless of how it contradicted Peter's perception. In Acts 4, Peter gets into this really interesting argument with a bunch of really smart academic theologians. He's way out of his league here, okay? And, and they're, they're saying all kinds of things like there's no way that Jesus Christ could be the Messiah, and here's why. They have all these legitimate reasons why he couldn't be the Messiah in the sense of looking at it from a logical perspective. And, and all of the, the smart people of the day, they concurred. They agreed. Yep, there's no way. And here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. It says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Here it is, verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here's what Peter's saying. Listen, we're not saying we're smarter than you. I'm out of my league here. You are smart. You've got all kinds of degrees and qualifications that I don't have. I'm just a fisherman. 
But then on the other hand, we know that this guy who came back, we know this guy who came back from the dead. And no offense to you, but all of your degrees, all of that is trumped by the fact that he did come back and we know it. That's what Peter's saying. So let me ask you today, you got to do a thought experiment, okay? I want you to take whatever objection you have to faith. Will you do that for me? Whatever it is, there's, you could be saying, man, there's so many different religions. How in the world does this preacher think uh, that, that Christianity or Jesus Christ is the only way? Or maybe it's just you look around the world, you see too much pain and suffering, and you can't fathom that or comprehend it, so there must not be a God. Or maybe the Bible says that certain things are wrong, and you just feel that's archaic. That's ridiculous that the Bible would say that's wrong. That's just so archaic to me. I want you to take whatever objections you have, And I want you to think for a moment that you were the first one into that empty tomb. You were the first one to walk into that empty tomb where Jesus says to you, I am who I say I am. I'm not going to answer all your questions right now, but I I, I will later. Jesus claimed to be the son of God, and that got him killed. Now, would you claim to be something you weren't if the consequence meant death? Think about this for a moment. Think Think about it like this. Would you ever walk into a police station and say, hey, I'm a mass murderer, I'm a serial killer, and uh, yeah, so I'm just turning myself in, and then all of a sudden you're facing the death penalty, and you didn't do it. You never murdered anybody. You're walking in, you're making this claim. Would you make a claim like that? People would think something was seriously wrong, wrong with you if you did this. What do you think was going through the minds of the people when Jesus did just this thing in the sense that he went and said, this is who I am, even knowing the difference is Jesus was the son of God. You know, my, my little story, you're not a serial killer. Jesus was the son of God, but they're saying he's not the son of God. Who would go in and say that and open himself up to be penalized by death? Who would do that? There wasn't a police station, there wasn't a murder, there wasn't even a crime, but that's what Jesus did. He said he, was, he is God. And there's only two results that can come from this. He's telling the truth, and he's telling the truth, or God is a lunatic and a liar. Jesus is a lunatic and a liar. If Jesus wasn't God and he was lying, he's a blasphemer too. And I want you to know that that's punishable by death. That's what the Pharisees kept accusing Jesus of doing all throughout John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They accuse him of blaspheming God. Here's what Jesus said in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was I am. John's gospel leaves us with no way to say Jesus never claimed to be God. I know skeptics say different, but they'll say Jesus never actually claimed to be be God. He never claimed it in the Bible. But he did. John 8, 58 tells us. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was I am. Jesus is claiming deity in this line. And this caps off Jesus speaking at the temple and and he was chiding the Jewish leaders for not believing in him. They're not believing in him. And and he he concludes with saying, I truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was I am. Now the accusations they gave to Jesus and his response about knowing the father, it seems to escalate to this point in order for them to understand. They don't understand, but they know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. They get what Jesus has just claimed. They get that. I am. Does that sound familiar to you? If you grew up in in the church, it should. I hope so. But if you need a little help, I'm going to help you out here. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we read, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So when Jesus tells them before Abraham was I am, he's telling the Pharisees he's the living God. He's not just saying before Abraham was I am to to get them upset and to rile them up. He is claiming deity here, and they knew it. He's making a declaration of truth. They wouldn't listen to what he said up to this point, but he knew this statement was going to resonate. What the Pharisees would hear is what they already knew from what Moses experienced and what Moses wrote. We as people, we like to be validated by hearing something preferably good about ourselves, right? I want you to know Jesus isn't doing this for his sake. He's doing this for their sake. He's doing it for our sake. Jesus' gospel records Jesus claiming his deity many times. Seven times, seven statements Jesus uses to describe himself that we only get from John. And I want to ask you to, to do something today. Like I said, I want you to take whatever objection you have, no matter what it is, and I want you to think for a minute that you were the first one into that tomb. And Jesus says to you, I am who I say I am. I'm not going to answer all the questions now. I will later. Here's what my, my question to you. Are you willing to suspend some of your objections to live with some unanswered questions? Until then. You say, yeah, but that's the thing, Pastor Justin. That's the problem. I can't go back and I can't see him. Okay, yeah, but even today, the evidence for it today is strong enough to reach a certain conclusion about it. The breakdown is not in, in the insufficiency of the evidence but in in some prejudice that keeps us from considering it on its own terms, right? Let me be really personal. This is how faith works for a lot of people. We have all these questions. We have doubt. We, we, We come to a place where we almost lose our faith. Something challenges us. You know, for me, it was my father being diagnosed with a brain tumor. All of a sudden, everything that I have been taught as a little kid, I am questioning because now my dad is dying. I have to watch my dad, who is my pastor, a spiritual leader, a good father, a good husband, a good a good follower of Jesus, all of a sudden he's dying a miserable, slow death from a brain tumor, and I am questioning everything about God I ever thought and believed. How can God be good? How could he do this? How could he allow this? It's going through my mind. Some of you guys are there. You can relate to what I'm saying. You've experienced hurt, you've experienced injustice, and you have asked yourself, how can God be good? Right? Well, I want to challenge you. Would you be willing to rethink some of your objections just temporarily until God explains them to you? Because here's the thing. One of two things is going to happen. You're going to refuse to even consider the evidence of the resurrection until God explains himself as if you refuse to consider the possibility that there is a God who runs the universe whose ways and understanding are higher than yours. Or you'll humble yourself before God and say, okay, God, I'll consider the evidence on its own terms, realizing that you may have, may have ways of running the universe which at first don't make sense to me. Let me tell you something. Faith is not having all of your questions answered. It's wrestling with the unexplainable, knowing that the unexplainable has an explanation on the basis of the resurrection. Okay? You, some of you might be real proud in the fact that you're, you're someone who doubts. But I'm asking, are you willing to, in light of the resurrection, doubt your doubts? For Peter, his resurrec- the resurrection of Jesus meant that Jesus was who he said he was. 
Jesus was who he said he was. So take away all your feelings, all the things that you think God should be, and just look at the claim that Jesus Christ made, and then look at what he did. He claimed to be God, and he resurrected from the dead. Okay? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me, uh, to the Father, except through me. This verse is one of the most well-known of Jesus' declarations. It summarizes so much of what Jesus taught in a mere, simple statement. As the way Jesus is saying, he's the true way to get to the Father. He's the only way. There's no other way. He's saying the path to God is exclusive and cannot be obtained any other way. None. I know what people say. There's all kinds of paths to God. No, there's not. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and no matter how you feel about his statement, no matter how you feel about what he's, what he's saying, you've got to look at the evidence of the re- resurrection, what he claimed to be and what he did. He's saying the only path to God is exclusive. It can't be obtained any other way. You, not by being a good person? Nope. It's only by believing and trusting in Jesus. Keeping the law fully? Nope. Only believing and trusting in Jesus. Only believing and trusting in Jesus, Pastor Justin? Really? Yes. Yes, I'm emphasizing only Jesus because it has to be said and you have to be reminded of it. What about the truth? Well, the truth, when he says, I'm the way, the truth. The truth from God and what Jesus revealed while on earth is what we really need to rely on as our standard. This is why we do verse-by-verse preaching at New Heights. Because anything that's counter to what the Father and the Son have revealed, it's not truth. In our day and age, the truths we know from God, they can be countered to what the world calls truth all the time. We're seeing it today more than ever. But as I just said, counter to God is not truth. Knowing God's word is important for believers because it gives us truth to stand up against false teaching and lies. Life, true and eternal life, it's only given by Jesus. When we confess Jesus as our Savior, he makes our dead hearts come to life. And all life exists because of him as a creator and sustainer. Peter understood the resurrection and it changed his life. Changed his life. Even my kids, small kids reading the book of Acts are seeing the change in the disciples' lives and I'm getting all kinds of questions. It's because of the resurrection. Number two, his past no longer had to define him. Remember, Peter didn't have a perfect past. He let Jesus down, denied him three times on the night of his arrest cussed out a little girl who accused him of being a follower of Jesus. Peter knew his past. He knew his past. He didn't deny his mistakes, but here's what he said in 1 Peter 1.3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, for Peter, there were two things in that statement that totally changed him. Here it is. Born again and living hope. You think about living hope. Your hopes, whatever you believe, gained you acceptance before God. And most people believe that God's acceptance of them is based on how good they are or how well they keep the rules of religion. And that might work fine for you until you fail and make a mistake. And then you start wondering, well, how good is good enough, right? Can you ever be good enough? The gospel is that Jesus earned our acceptance or or earned our acceptance in our place. He paid the penalty for sin. He lived the life that we should live, and he died the death that we should have died. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty. You see, the resurrection is God's declaration that he's accepted Jesus' payment on our behalf. In the resurrection, he he declared that Jesus' payment for us was sufficient. 
And now Jesus stands alive by the throne, alive testifying to that. And that's why Peter can say, I have this living hope kept in heaven for me. It's safe. The living, the living Jesus stands there as my acceptance into heaven. Whenever an accusation is brought against me, Jesus said, I paid for that. I paid for that. I can make a bold statement before, and I'm not a cocky, arrogant preacher. I just know my God. I can make a bold statement. I'm positive that I, if I died today, right now, if I died on stage, I'd go to heaven. I know that. He's my salvation. Most people believe in our culture or most people in our culture believe that all religions teach the same thing. That's not true. Our hope's not, not in how well we live, but in the fact, our hope is in the fact that Christ took our place. So in the resurrection, I now have a living hope that's no longer based on me. And furthermore, Peter says, in the resurrection, I'm born again, which means God has started this process of new life in me. I love being around new Christians, new believers, because you see that change, that radical change in their life. The power of the resurrection turned Peter, a Jesus-denying coward, into Peter, the rock of the church. That's the same power that can work in you. Today I can say with certainty that this place is filled with people who have stories of past mistakes. Maybe some have had addictions that have caused terrible pain. Maybe some today have been unfaithful to their spouses. We may even have felons here today. You have a record that you, can, you, you feel you can never get away from. Some have been in places they should have never been, doing things they should have never done. And some might be here today that will quickly acknowledge they were full of bitterness, unforgiveness, racism, hate, but God changed them. And not because they were decent people who needed a second chance, but because they were dead people whom God made alive. See, some might feel like you're too messed up for God to be interested in you. That your mistakes, they're way too severe. Your addictions are too strong. But I want you to hear me today. If you take anything home, take this. God breathed life into a dead body. He breathed courage into cowardly Peter. He breathed love into a murderous Paul. And when you believe, he will breathe new life into you. And here's the third thing, the third and final thing that Peter, the resurrection did for Peter. He could be assured of his future. 1 Peter 1, 1.4, it says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's your fixed reference point. Something amazing, something wonderful, something beyond what you could even imagine. An inheritance and a hope that death and disease cannot touch. Something that is so amazing it makes the pain worth it. Peter says, and I see this inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus. Now think for a minute about the resurrection of Jesus, what it meant for Peter. His darkest hour had been when Jesus died. That's when everything fell apart. He'd based his entire life on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but now Jesus is dead. That Friday and Saturday, that, that time of complete, utter despair, and you talk about depression, Peter and the disciples had it. He's so disappointed. Like I said, he denies even knowing Jesus. But then Sunday, he goes to the tomb and it's empty. And then Jesus appears to him and his sadness turns to joy. His despair is turned into triumph. And he realizes that the whole time God had a plan. Yeah, Friday and Saturday, they were tough. They were painful. But there was a Sunday coming that reversed all of the pain of Friday and Saturday. That's what Easter is about. Peter sees that. 
He sees right now that we're all, we're all living some kind of Saturday. We're all exiles, but, but that time is brief, and the joy of the resurrection of Sunday is coming. It's coming. I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. I'm going to admit it right now. And J.R.R. Tolkien described the resurrection as a time when everything sad becomes untrue. I'm the only one who likes that. That's okay. Go watch Lord of the Rings, all right? There is a great Sunday morning in eternity where all sad things come untrue. You are reunited with a lost child. Disease is taken away. There's no more pain and crying. And God wipes away every tear. And here's another thing Peter saw in the resurrection. On that worst day where it looked like God was least in control, God was most in control. Okay? The greatest day in human history was the day of the crucifixion. But to, or, to, to them, it looked like the worst. It wasn't just that God won in the end. It was that God used the apparent defeats as a part of his plan. All right? Now, what if you saw your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection? Can you do that today? Can you view your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection? That, that there was a glorious Sunday morning, and it's coming when all sad things would come untrue. And inheritance, death and deeds, they can't touch. And then you see even the most painful parts of your life working toward that end. Jesus was God's expression of mercy. Jesus was God's purchasing salvation for us through his death on the cross. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we were commend, or condemned to die. He was God dying on a cross for you and for me. And I love this statement. Jesus didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. That's salvation, and it offers a living hope. This is a hope that's stronger than death. It extends beyond death. It's found only in the resurrection. In the resurrection, everything permanent that could, that could destroy or defeat us, it was crushed on the cross. Or in the resurrection, excuse me, oh, on the cross too. That's good theology. So here's my question. Where's your hope for your future? I mean, really, where's your hope for you? Is it, is it in your personal finances? Are you hoping for some political change? Listen to this. Viktor Frankl, and I'll close with this, was a Jewish-Austrian doctor who was imprisoned at Auschwitz in World War II and survived. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he told stories from his time there, and he described how various prisoners dealt with the despair. Many, he said, responded to their hopeless situation by becoming brutal and cruel themselves, a kind of survival of the, of the fittest. Others, Frankl said, just gave up. Here's what he wrote. He said, usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar, familiar to us who had been at Auschwitz for a while. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoners simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. Any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Many, he said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in society would be restored to them. But after liberation, they found those things uh, were gone. Everything had changed, and many went into a very deep depression. Many of the survivors even died by suicide. Their hopes had been shattered. Frankel said that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point outside the world, something they held on to that was beyond the grasp of death and destruction. Like the prisoners at Auschwitz, for many of us, our hope is some fixed reference point in this world. That's flimsy. That's a flimsy hope. 
that our circumstance will change. That's a flimsy hope. One day we're, we're going to think things are going to get better. The pan, all of these things that we, I mean, three years ago it was, we're going to hope the pandemic ends. And when the pandemic ends, we're going to go back to being normal. Or I'm going to get a job. Or I'm going to find this spouse. Uh, I, everything's going to work out. My bank account's going to grow. I'm going to be healed from this chronic pain. I'm going to be healed from this terminal sickness. But what if those things don't happen? You don't get the job. You don't get married. The pain doesn't go away. Do you have a living hope that death can't touch? A refuge, uh, a re- a refuge that challenges of life can't overcome. A shelter that the storms of life can't shake. Because if you don't, all you need to do is say yes to Jesus. That's, that's what the resurrection is all about. It's your only hope for a new life. There's few things in life that you, that you, need, that you need to do. You got to breathe to survive. You have to have fluids to sustain life. You have to have food to continue living. But if you want to see heaven, you must be born again or you never will. And you're deceiving yourself the whole way through. Simple formula. Here it is. Ready? If you're you're born once, you're going to die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. Now, I know all of you have been born once because I'm looking at you. Right? That's physical birth. Physical birth grants you entrance into physical life. But Jesus said a man must be born a second time. All right, that's spiritual birth. If you're born once physically, you're going to die twice. Physically and spiritually, eternally separated from God. But if you're born twice, physically and spiritually born again, you will only die once. You only die physically, but never spiritually. So that when you die, you can truly say, we, we can truly say to you, well, congratulations on your new location." That's the formula. That's it. That's why Peter could say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's Easter. That's Easter. (laughs) I love it. I'm excited. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. And I love the verse that says God's mercies are new every morning because I need them every morning. I depend on them every single day. I need God's mercies. So here's what I want to do. We're going to close the service. I'm going to give you an invitation to accept Jesus and surrender your life to him. I'm not saying you have to have all your questions answered today. I'm saying by faith you're going to say, man, I'm going to believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. I'm going to look at all all the facts, all the historical uh, proofs that Jesus was who he said he was and, and, was, and really did come back from the dead. I'm going to put my hope in him, and I'm going to let Jesus answer the questions later, all my objections, okay? Can you do that? And I want you to know, your spiritual life is a journey. I still don't have all my questions answered about my father, but I have a feeling that one day when I'm in heaven, I won't need to even ask Jesus. I mean, they're questions right now, but I have a feeling that one day when I'm in the presence of the one true living God, I won't even have a need to ask the question. And I will tell you this, I am glad that I never turned my back on on my God, that I never walked away from him, because his mercies are new every morning, and I need them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And then we are going to conclude with a baptismal service. We've got the kids. They can come on in. But Yeah, and we've got the Spanish uh, service. They're going to join us. That's why we had to block off. I don't think we got enough seats, though. This is going to be good, though. We've got aisles and we can sit. But we are going to celebrate new life. And so here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to close your eyes and bow your heads. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, 
Today is your day. You don't need to walk out of these doors wondering if I died today, would I go to heaven? You can put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, who's the truth and the life. He's wanting you to do it today. It's not by accident that you're here. The Holy Spirit has drawn you in. You do not have to run from Jesus anymore. Today, you can embrace him. You can experience real life. And I'm not telling you that your life circumstances and your situations are gonna change. I'm not gonna tell you that. I'm gonna tell you your perspective will something you will be infused with real life so if that's you today i want you to raise your hand i see that hand keep it up just for a minute i see that hand amen i see that hand praise the lord anybody else if you i see that hand i see that hand in the back thank you i see that hand praise god praise god anybody else and here's what we're going to do we're going to close in prayer and i'm going to have the whole church follow after me dear jesus Thank you so much for what you did on the cross. Thank you for taking my sin on you. Thank you for taking my penalty and giving me eternal life. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior, and I surrender my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I could live to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're gonna do. The worship team's gonna be playing in the back. We're gonna have a baptismal service. Those who are being baptized are gonna follow Pam. Pam, say hi. This is my awesome admin. She is gonna take you back. Look, if you have made the decision today to follow Jesus, or if you have never been water baptized, guess what? We're ready for you. So we came prepared. If there is anybody that's gonna say, you know what, I wanna be baptized today. We've got all kinds of clothes. We have literally cleared out all the Walmarts and the Targets in all of Fairfield and Cincinnati. There's nothing left. We've taken all the mesh shorts, the towels, and the shirts. We are ready. If you wanna be water baptized today, you can follow Pam right into this bathroom room and she will make sure that you're ready. If you feel it during the service, you're watching other people get baptized. I want you to know there is room for you. If you've never been baptized, do it today. Make a declaration that Jesus is your King.